0: Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. This is Rumble Strip, America Heilman.
1: They say one of the common things that happens to people that have high fever, and a lot of COVID patients do, is that at the height of their illness, they start seeing things. And we normally describe these as being hallucinations or daydreams or things like that. In my case, they were uh, an important part of my experience of being deathly ill.
0: That's Daniel Kirk. He's a children's book author and illustrator, and he lives with his wife in New Jersey, about 12 miles outside of Manhattan. They were both infected with COVID last March, before it had spread much in the US, and they still don't know where they got it. By now, we know a lot more about COVID. We hear about the symptoms, we can recite the symptoms but what does it actually feel like to struggle to breathe? And for those who become deathly ill, who slip into some state between waking and dreaming, where is that exactly? A few days after his diagnosis, Daniel's fever had climbed to 104. Here's Daniel Kirk.
1: My wife started to feel better. And I thought to myself, well, I should feel better too, because we both had the same thing. Why aren't I getting better? I was getting worse my ability to concentrate and even sit upright or or talk were getting really really compromised and and then at a certain point i really couldn't do anything anymore i couldn't work i couldn't think all i could do was lie flat on my back and cough and feel miserable and and we'd hear about uh people what they would get as treatment in the hospital and they would get ventilators and stuff and i and i was like I need a ventilator. You know, if I get a ventilator, I'm going to be fine, you know. So as soon as I got to the hospital, I said, you know, when can I get a ventilator? Do you have ventilators? Because I knew they were in short supply, and the nurse said, oh, you don't want a ventilator. And I didn't even know what a ventilator was, really, but I just thought it was something that might help. I thought it might be just one of those little things where they, you know, a little mask to help give you some more oxygen or something. I didn't realize it was this, this serious intubation kind of thing that I found out later. So... My wife kept coming to me during that time and asking me if I was okay and trying to figure out what was wrong. And we would call the doctor and the doctor would say, well, talk to me for a minute, tell me how you're feeling. And then and then through that listening over the phone, she was able somehow to discern that I sounded pretty sick, but not sick enough to go to the hospital. And we did not know at that point whether the hospital was overwhelmed, whether there was room or not. We didn't know anything except that I didn't think that I could take care of myself at home anymore, and my wife certainly didn't either. She was just afraid I was going to drop dead right there, and no one was going to be able to stop it. It wasn't like any flu I'd ever had. I've had plenty of flus in my life, and there was nobody to give me any answers and tell me that it would be okay, so I was constantly having to be attentive for new depths of symptoms that would alert me that things were getting worse. So we had been speaking to the doctor on the phone a few times, and we had a few video calls where my wife would dial the number for me because I was no longer capable of doing that. And we would talk to the doctor, and she would say, take your shirt off and put the phone right up next to your chest. Now take a deep breath. And the deep breaths that I took let her know that I may well have pneumonia. And later she described it as sounding like my lungs were full of broken glass. And if I had pneumonia, that was something they could do something about. So she said, okay, if you feel like it's time and you really can't breathe, uh, why don't you go to the hospital and check in in the emergency room? Looking back on this today, my wife describes the fact that when she was trying to take care of me, and I was not allowed to go to the hospital, that she was absolutely terrified. And I was absolutely terrified too, but we couldn't really talk to each other about how terrified we were, or maybe we just couldn't see any point in it. So we got right to the business of getting me ready to go to the hospital. So we went and got in the car, and she drove me to the hospital, and I opened up the door and said goodbye to her, gave her a kiss and said goodbye, knowing that it seemed to me there was a fair chance we would never see one another again there's that metaphor about being on the being on the boat and you have to just go your own your own separate way and the the waves are choppy and you've got an oar and that's it and i think my wife and i both realized that was what was happening so so it's not this panicky feeling of like oh my god i i never i never said i loved her or, you know anything like that it's like we know where we are we know where we stand and how we feel about each other and we love our kids and life's good. And But there is that feeling too of being, okay, here I am setting off on this adventure that's, you know, or misadventure that's just me. It's me in the boat. So I walked into the emergency room or staggered perhaps would be a better, better word. I told them that I was sick with coronavirus. I'd been diagnosed positive and that I couldn't breathe and I needed help. And, there were four or five women uh, who were wearing gowns and masks behind the desk, who all turned around and stared at me, and they all looked scared too. In retrospect, I can see everybody was scared, and today everybody is still scared, you know, because we don't know how contagious we are. We don't know how close we can get to people or or anything like that to protect ourselves from what the other stranger might be carrying. And as quickly as they could. They put me in a side room. It was more or less a glorified storage closet, as far as I could tell. And I was told to wait. And they said they weren't sure whether they were going to admit me or not, because I might not be in bad enough shape. And I just thought, how much worse would I have to be? How could anybody be in worse shape than I am right this minute? It became all I could do to suck in breath. It, it wasn't just that it, it hurt a little bit. It was that there wasn't any air coming in and that kind of suffocating feeling is, uh, is just fundamentally terrifying. So I lay there shivering and my teeth chattering and coughing and coughing and coughing until they finally came with a device to take a chest X-ray to see if I had pneumonia, because once again, pneumonia is something they can treat you for in the hospital. So when they concluded that I did, in fact, have double pneumonia related to COVID, they said that they would check me into the hospital and that I would be taken to a room on the new COVID floor on the fourth floor of the hospital as quickly as could be. But it might be a while because the COVID ward was new and they weren't going to tell me whether it was full of people yet or whether maybe they were still patching up plastic Curtains, or I had no idea what they were doing to make the COVID wart, but whatever they were doing, it wasn't ready for me yet. So I had to wait in the closet until then. The first night that I was in the hospital in that little storage closet, I had the first of many what I would call visions that came to me. I saw a fountain, and it was this incredibly detailed, beautiful, glowing fountain and I could hear the w- bubbles of water splash and there was a, like an eyeball up at the top of the fountain looking down on me and I was told or made aware somehow that this was the fountain of, of love that exists everywhere and that the water that was flowing from the fountain was flowing through my eyes as tears so that the sadness I was feeling and the loneliness I shouldn't interpret it that way because it's really the waters of of life and love flowing through my eyes. And when I had that particular kind of vision or dream or hallucination, and then I came back to more or less lucidity, the lucidity I came back to was not nearly as focused as that dream had been. And I picked up my phone and I just got onto Facebook and described this, this vision that I had had I wanted the world to know what tears actually are and I had I had been told what tears really are and I thought it would make people happier so I wanted to share that news <laughs> <laughs> So finally they came to take me up to the fourth floor and and to me this this fourth floor where the covid ward was was A sanctuary. You know, it was, it was going to be this fantastic place where people were going to know what to do. And so there was a whole lot of attention right at first as I was basically tied up with cables and strapped to this bed so that I could, I could barely move. And then pretty much they disappeared and I was left in the room by myself. People are isolated, and no one, you know, friends and relatives can't come visit you, and and the nursing staff can't really come in just to chit-chat or anything like that. Everybody's very, very busy, and they don't want to be in the room with you because you might get them sick. But at the same time, I was still moving through that business of how to get to the bathroom and what if I have an accident, and, and they were having a hard time putting an IV into my arm, so they had to put the IVs into my hands. And and I I thrash around and pull the ivy out and then blood would sp- sp- spatter all over everything and they'd have to change all the bedding to get you know to get the blood away and in in these periods where I would dream or have visions, it was sort of a blessed relief from the reality of being stuck in that hospital like that. There were many times in the hospital when I would wake up and feel that I wasn't my actual physical self lying in the bed, but that I was a battlefield and that there was a war happening on the surface of my body. That I was just this vast expanse of ground and it was dark and there were soldiers running back and forth all over my body and shooting each other and cannons going off and, and once in a while there'd be a big explosion and, and, and there'd be a moment of light and in that moment of light, that was when the nurse would come into the room. Or they would hook up my IV with fresh drugs and I would go back to lucidity for a little bit and then I would sink back down into that battlefield so that these these big explosions of light were the only connection I had with the outside world and the, the, the breathing was sort of like this breathing up through the ground like I was the earth and the earth was alive and my breath coming in and out of me was was existence how long can this go on? This is like this war that's happening in my body and how long how long can I survive this? A lot of people have have not survived it. Being deprived of oxygen is is just about the most scary thing there is. So there is is that feeling of of panic but because breathing is is so difficult it really requires all of your concentration just to get another breath in. <clears throat> so I, I tended not to focus on that feeling of panic. But there were times when I would just get so tired and so weary and so exhausted of, of being there and trying to breathe and just thinking, this is, I, I've had enough. You know, I, I just can't do this anymore you know, if I could manage to crawl out into the hallway and ask somebody to just please kill me, I would be so grateful, you know, but I can't, I can't get out of the bed, you know, I can't find the telephone, I, the, you know, I, and I know they wouldn't, they wouldn't do it anyway, and you never know until you're in that experience, whether you're the kind of person who will just give up and say, okay, I'm dead, or whether you'll be the one who will keep, keep fighting and fighting and fighting. So I, I, I sort of chastised myself for, for feeling so weak and, and ready to give up when I just thought, no, I have to, you know, there's so much more I want to do and I want to see my kids grow up and have grandkids and all these things. But I know people who are younger than me and stronger than me who went into the hospital and died, it does end up in some way feeling like a roll of the dice. And that has no meaning at all. Who's gonna live and who's gonna die? As I was getting sicker in the hospital right before it turned and I started to get better, I had one of these nighttime visitations from my father who's been dead for 15 years. It was dark and there was somebody in the room and I and I was kind of scared and I'm like, Who's who's there? Is somebody there? And I just sensed somebody's presence and then somebody came and took me in their arms and I could smell it was my dad. And I said, Dad, you know, what are you doing here? And he didn't say a word, he didn't answer, but I could hear him breathing, and his breathing was very calm and peaceful. Anyway, he just he just helped me. And it felt really good. To be, you know, for a child to be held in someone's arms, you know, for as long as there's time, you know, is the nature of, the nature of that kind of relationship. And sometimes these things that you feel that you, you don't even know if you've just imagined it are so real. All of your senses are heightened and all of your emotions are heightened and it just has a, a sense of, of reality that's greater than, you know, sitting or talking on the phone to you. The hospital is a very different place than normal life. For one thing, it's not easy to get the lights off in a room. So the difference between day and night starts to disappear. The, the fluorescent lights overhead were always on, and I, and I couldn't get up to switch them off. Couldn't find the light switch if my light had, life had depended on it. And and as I said, people come and go. At that point, people were coming in. Everybody was was gowned up. And if they had masks, they wore them. If they had face shields, they wore them. They had they had uh, goggles on. Some of them, like hard, like you'd wear in a wood shop, uh, or ventilators, like you'd see people wearing in a wood shop. I think there was a lot of makeshift stuff happening. Where you know some of the kind of low-level people who were there to change bed pans and take your dirty food tray and things like that. It looked like they weren't definitely were not getting provided with the right kind of advice or the personal protection kind of stuff that they should have had. So people would come in with scarves wrapped around their faces and stuff like that, and, and as I said, woodworking goggles. And I had no idea what was outside the room. You know, once in a while I would hear moaning or crying from other rooms. Around me, I couldn't tell whether they were above or below or left or right. And when and when they would open the door to go out into the hallway, they'd always take off their headdresses and their ga- their, their gowns and their masks, and they all go right into the dangerous trash with that you know the danger warning, that red emblem that they have on things. And they would toss all that. And I would I would try to sit up and peer out the door to see what was going on out there. It was like the world had, in a way, the world had ceased to exist. The world now was only just what was going on in that room. And I was not confident that I was getting better. I just, you know, the the fever and the, the breathing and stuff was, it was just not really getting better. I, I was saying, you know, if I ever get out of here, I said to one nurse, if I ever get out of here, will I, will I be normal again? Will I be healthy? She goes, well, you might need an oxygen tank to breathe. And I thought, really? Okay. So I'll need for the rest of my life to carry around an oxygen tank. I guess, I guess I could do that. But um I was definitely not feeling well and I had this this vision that I was walking through a landscape and it was alive. It was everything in it was it was like um psychedelic almost or it was numinous, you know, it was everything was alive, everything in it was breathing and, and pulsing with energy and life. And and I realized it was my grandfather's farm. And I was coming up over the hill to where there was a stream that trickled down to a lake. And all my relatives were there who had died. So I thought, uh-oh, this isn't good. This is what happens when you die. And my relatives came to me, and they, they, you know, reached out their hands and said, you know, here we are. You know, are you ready? You want to join us? And I'm like, well, what do you mean, join you? And they go, well, you can stay here if you want. And um, I stepped back, and I felt suddenly that the the ground had given way beneath my feet, and that I was... Um, I felt like I had become a strand of DNA or a a giant corkscrew and I could feel my body was like molten gold and that it extended in a screw-like fashion just down into the center of the earth and beyond and every time there was a turn of the screw beneath me it was another another relative there from the dawn of time these people had lived and survived and had children and and suffered and died and prospered and all the things they did and I was, I was tied to them in this way that I could never escape. I was part of this molten living presence of time and, gen- and genetic relationship. And um, I thought, I'm not supposed to go back. I'm not, I'm, I'm not supposed to die. And I realized I was, I was stepping into a, a kind of a tunnel. It was a des- descending downhill tunnel full of fluid, cold water, and I had to get into the cold water on my belly and slide into the darkness. I had no idea what it was. It was dark and scary and I didn't know what was happening. And I, But I knew that I had, to, I had to turn and get into this thing. I, it was either join my family of deceased relatives in this glorious post-life splendor, or I had to get into this dark tube full of fear and unknowing and coldness. And that's what I chose. And I got into that, and I slid into the darkness, and I woke up, and there was daylight in the room, and I was there in the hospital again.
0: What made you choose to go back?
1: You know, honestly, I think one of the main reasons was I just thought it was, I thought it was too hokey. So, I mean, I know that I'm, you know, we're supposed to, right? we Are we supposed to join into that glorious heavenly family somehow when we, after we die? It just felt like my visceral reaction was, this is a cliche and this is not for me, you know? And there are all these people I used to know that are gone now. And they're all kind of like beautiful and vital and just pulsing with life and energy and, you know. Um,
0: and you were like, nah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> you know they say that the people who have had sort of near-death experiences are often not afraid of death after that and I kind of feel like that's true for me. It took me a long time to get better, it took me months and months. I was just racked with uh, exhaustion and the inability to concentrate. But I also feel like that in a way that there's a gap that hasn't been healed back up yet, which is sort of between my body and my spirit somehow. There was something out there in that place where you go beyond what's me and what isn't me, to just some something that's deep down inside all of us. And once you step out of out of your normal life where you identify what is me and what isn't me, you can find your yourself in a place where you've tapped into something that everybody can have access to and as close as i came to dying in the hospital there was still this fire this place inside me where visions come from where the desire to live comes from and the intensity of that fire was still immeasurably hot and consuming and and vital and full of life
0: that was Daniel Kirk you can find a link to his work on my website rumblestripvermont.com If you have a comment, I would love to hear from you. Just go to the show page on the website and scroll to the bottom, and you'll find a comment box there. And if you like the show and you have a minute to make a comment on Apple Podcasts, that would also be great because it helps new listeners find the show. The music for this show is by my friends Mike D'Onofrio and Brian Clark. Mike actually pulled out his bass specially for this show, for which I owe him a large growler of very good beer. If you want to make a donation to the show, that would also be great. I rely on them. I also have t-shirts for sale on my website that read Rumble Strip. It's a podcast. Rumble Strip is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of independent podcasts from all over the country. You can learn more about these shows at hubspokeaudio.org. I'll be back soon with new shows. This is Rumble Strip. I'm Erica Heilman. Thanks a lot for listening.